Take your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 12. Thanks for being here this morning. We started a new series last week. We are following around Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just so that we can learn about them, but because in the scripture, God is referred to consistently as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's referred to as the God of your fathers. And so uh, following around Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will really help us to understand who it is that we follow. Who is God What is he doing? What does he want out of our lives? And by looking at these three men and their families, we know a little bit more about ourselves. Their story, as I said last week, is a story of borrowed land. They were sojourners. They were semi-nomadic people. They were really just following God and following the path that God had laid out for them. Almost all of their stories take place in different places, in different locations. They never had a place to really call their own, which is really a great way of thinking about what it means to live in our culture. We said this last week, we'll say it again. There are some places in this city, in our nation, in the world that are totally hospitable to your faith in Jesus. People like that you follow Jesus. You get maybe some credibility at your workplace because of that. They want you praying for them when their life is not going well. Uh, They, you know, come to you for advice and wisdom. And so your faith, in some situations, it elevates you. But then then all of us have uh, circumstances where the exact opposite happens. Because of our faith, it seems like we're, you know, pushed down a little bit, that we're not persecuted, but there are some instances where we are less credible because we have faith in Jesus. Why? Because we live in borrowed land. There is a land that is coming where we will feel totally at home, but it's not yet. And so we're going to spend the next few months walking with these men through borrowed land. I've been thinking a lot about school because Jackson and Annabeth, our seven and four-year-old, started school this week. And uh, somebody asked me recently, what was the hardest season of your life? I don't know if anybody's asked you that question. Just think about it for just a second. What is the hardest season of your life? Maybe you go all the way back to elementary days, maybe high school, maybe college, maybe right now is the hardest days of your life. And So the more I thought about it, the answer was really clear. Middle school was the hardest years of my life. Not because like traumatic things happened to them, but I was very self-aware in middle school. You know what I'm talking about? I was very in touch with how I looked, how I acted, how I talked, and a lot of changes happening to people in middle school. So for me, the more self-aware I was, the less I liked myself. And so it was just a real, you know, tremendous uh, time of, of not knowing who I was or knowing who I was and not liking who I was, which is some of our problems. We know exactly who we are and we're not a big fan. And that was me in middle school. One time in middle school, I had a a teacher who just had unreasonable expectations. You ever have a teacher like this? Just had very high expectations, not for just grades and stuff, but just the amount of work that you were doing. She thought that it was acceptable to tell us that every single week we had to go to the library, check out a book, read the whole book, and do a book report on it. And so the first half of the semester, I really tried to do my best. I'm a firstborn people pleaser. I don't like being in trouble. I want to achieve. Uh, But there was one week that I just couldn't get it all done. And by couldn't get it all done, I mean I did 
didn't want to do it. And so I checked out the book and I didn't read it, but it was time to turn in the report. Uh, So I had a choice. I could just be honest with her and say, I'm sorry, you're unreasonable and I couldn't do my work or there were some great television programs on or I wanted to play with my friends or whatever it was uh, and I didn't do the work. I could be honest, but I didn't want to be honest because she was kind of an intimidating person, had an intimidating personality. Again, I didn't want to, uh, you know, her to be mad at me, firstborn people pleaser. And so uh, I was afraid to tell her the truth. So I did what any normal person would do is I just turned the book over. I read the summary on the back. That's step one. Listen, if you write the report after just reading the back, everyone knows that you cheated. You have to open up the book, find some random facts on some random pages, work those into the report. It also helps to put a page number in there, you know, on page such and such. It said this. That's the way that you fake it. Now, don't do it because it's immoral and wrong, but... I just feel like it's important that we, you know, if we're going to cheat, we would cheat well, you know. (laughs) I'm kidding. It's wrong in every way. But that's what I did. And I turned in the report and a couple days went by, nothing, didn't hear anything about it. About a week later, apparently I was not the only person who was having a hard time uh, keeping up with their work. A lot of people had cheated. They just had not cheated as well as I did. And so uh, they had gotten caught. And so she just naturally assumed that if a handful of people were cheating, many people were cheating. So about a week after trying to slide this book report in, she comes in, she says, here's what we're going to do today. I feel like you guys are not reading your books. You're trying to fake your book report. So in just a second, I'm going to call you up one by one and I'm going to look you in the eye And I'm going to ask you if you read this book. So my last name is Jones. So I was about halfway through the class. And, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. She calls my name. I I stand up. I still remember what I was wearing. Uh, I was like a middle school version of Johnny Cash. I was all black. I had a black turtleneck on. Turtleneck. Legit turtleneck. Folded over. Uh, black baseball jersey over that, uh, black wind pants, uh, black tennis shoes, and a silver chain (laughs) outlining. It popped off the black turtleneck. I I looked fantastic. That's that's probably why I remember this story so well. So she calls me up and she says, did you read this book? It was called Maze Maker, if any of you are looking for a good sixth grade book to read. Did you read this book? And, you know, I had two options. I could go with the lie. I could just go all the way through with it and say absolutely. Or you could confess the truth. There was a third option. The third option was to uh, start, um, start weeping <laughs> in front of everyone. Uh, I'm not talking about a single romantic tear. I did something wrong. And I feel devastated about it. I'm talking about ugly cry, like, (gasps) 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 and listen, you've never been humiliated until you have ugly cried in middle school in front of your peers (laughs) as a male. This hasn't, uh, we, we didn't really even get punished. The punishment was we actually had to read the books that we faked. I think that she gave that grace to the class because of my demonstration of humiliation and and brokenness she's like I can't punish this guy I mean he's scarred forever literally scar emotional deep scar I need counseling it was it was horrible but I made a bad decision I I was not honest 
And the reason I was not honest is because I was afraid. I want you to go back just quickly in your mind and think about the bad decisions that you've made in your life. Now don't go down and dwell. I don't ask anybody to get into the nitty gritty, gritty of the details. But just go back. Just start walking back. Start now and just walk your way back. I would guess that most of our bad decisions, somewhere in the middle of it was fear. Fear of being alone, fear of being left out, fear of loss, fear of failure, fear fear of being excluded, fear of rejection. Most of our bad decisions, fear is the thing that finally pushes us over the edge. Because think about how long we think about things before we actually make the wrong decision. Most of the time, we kind of weigh it back and forth. We weigh the pros and we weigh the cons. It's fear that pushes us over into doing the wrong thing. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the scripture today. Genesis chapter 12. We were introduced to Abram yes, uh, last week. Abram living in ordinary family history. In the middle of that ordinary family history, God calls him, removes him from his people, says, I want you to leave your roots. I want you to leave your homeland and I want you to follow me. And if you'll follow me, I'm not telling you where we're going. If you will follow me, then I will make your descendants, your children, your offspring, your children's children and their children's children. I will make them as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. If you will follow me and Abram does. Now, this is the very next story that we get. And he's already making a terrible, terrible decision. And he makes it because he's afraid. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. Now all three of our patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are going to have to move because of famine. And he goes down to Egypt because Egypt has the Nile River and the Nile River gave Egypt kind of a head start on the famine. It protected them. It was another measure of protection because of the richness of that land. And so he goes down there to Egypt thinking that they will have some sustenance for him. And it says the famine was severe. So already Abram is pushed out of what is comfortable for him. He has to move, which is when, when we are vulnerable for fear. You are most vulnerable to fear When you are uncomfortable, when something happens in your life that upsets the status quo, when the doctor has that kind of puzzled look on his face with the results, he's like, I'm not saying it's anything, but it might be something, I'm not sure, fear comes in, status quo is interrupted. When your boss says, hey, we're we're, we're making some layoffs and I don't know who's going to be protected, the status quo is interrupted, fear comes in. Nobody is afraid at home at five o'clock on Friday afternoon, just after you've been paid, looking forward to a, a fun weekend with big plans. Nobody is afraid then. Why? Because we are totally comfortable. It's when our comfort is taken away from us that we're vulnerable for, for fear. And Abram and Sarai, they are uncomfortable. They have to move because they don't have any food. And it says this in verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt... He said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Isn't that lovely, ladies? Men, just quote the scripture to your wife when you're leaving today. Your girlfriend, significant other, person you're interested in. um, You are beautiful in appearance. That's going to win you some major points. But Abraham's getting ready to spend all of those points and more in just a second. He's going to mess it up big time. 
And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So he says, here's the deal. We go into Egypt because you are beautiful in appearance. The Pharaoh, he's the king. He gets everything he wants. He's going to want you. And because he wants you and we're already married, he's going to disconnect us. And the way he's going to disconnect us is he's going to kill me. So I don't want to die. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to pretend that you're my half sister, which, or my sister, which she was. We learn from Genesis chapter 20, she was his half sister, which is totally gross to us and uh, our modern sensibilities, but more appropriate in their culture. That was not a thing at all. So she was his half sister. They had the same father, different mothers. But he told a half truth to cover up the whole truth. I mean, you know what this is like. When we do this most often is when we've been caught. What do we do? We confess a little bit, but we don't confess the whole thing. If somebody finds out that you've been talking about them behind their back, you're busted, you can't deny it. What do you do? Yes, I did say that. I'm so sorry. Listen, I didn't want to talk about it. They wanted to talk about it. I'm so sorry that that happened. I'll never do it again. That's a half truth because the whole truth is, is every time you get together with that friend, you talk about the other person. The half truth is, yes, I did it that time. The whole truth is I did it all the time. Half truth to cover up the whole truth. He was... She was his half-sister. And what is he afraid? He's afraid that Pharaoh is going to kill him. And listen, this is a legitimate fear. We're going to find out that this was a totally rational fear. Some of us have irrational fears. Some of us are afraid of things that will never happen in 100 million years. Just irrational fears. But there are fears in this world that are totally rational and they are totally legitimate. But just because it is a legitimate fear does not give us permission to make a bad decision. And many of us make bad decisions that we feel are justified because we had rational fear in the moment. And so he's afraid of Pharaoh. And again, it's a legitimate fear because there's something unsettling when an authority seems to act against you. I've told you, I told you last week that my son Jackson and I did a big, long, massive road trip. And we, we started in Texas and we ended up in Los Angeles, drove to Los Angeles, spent a few days there. And then we drove all the way back. And as we were coming outside of Los Angeles, I was talking to Amanda on the phone. And in the flow of traffic, you guys know what the, this is the flow of traffic here in Houston, Texas. And for the first time in many, many, many years, I saw those red and blue lights right behind me. I automatically assumed that he was after somebody else because, well, had I done wrong in the flow of traffic? But sure enough, he was, uh, you know, coming for me. And the worst thing was is that I was on the phone with my wife when it happened, you know. I didn't have the opportunity to, you know, come back to Houston, take her out to dinner, you know, make sure that she's, you know, had a fantastic day. And oh, by the way, I got a speeding ticket. No, I was on the phone with her when he pulled me over and it was call me right after he leaves. And so, all right, fantastic. So he's in his car and I'm on the side of the road. And, and so I'm getting my stuff out, you know, because I haven't been pulled over in a long time because I'm an awesome person and a good person, a law-obeying, law-obeying person. 
And so I'm ready, you know, and I'm nervous, and I'm trying to think like, you know, I got my license, I got my registration. My Bible was also there because Jackson and I had gone to church in Los Angeles. And so I spent a good 30 seconds trying to figure out what to do with my Bible. Like, should I hide it because maybe something bad has happened to him at church? Should I display it? You know, should I hand him my license, insurance, and Bible (laughs) at the same time? I decided just to leave it where it was and let God use it if he wanted to use it. But I hand it to him. So he comes to the window and he is on a mission. Like I see him walking as he's coming. I'm like, oh man, I'm toasted. Because he was walking with a purpose. You know, he just did not just want to chat with the guy from Texas. He was on a purpose. And he got there and I had this humble look on my face, which is like, I'm, was I speeding? I'm sorry. I honestly didn't know. I was in the flow of traffic. And, and I kept saying flow of traffic, flow of traffic, flow of traffic, hoping that that was going to get me out of this situation. And he's like, you were doing two things wrong. You were going too fast and you were also talking on your phone. Now in California, you're not allowed to take your phone up to your ear like that. That's against the law. You got to use a hands-free device. And I was using a hands-free device, but I was holding my phone down by my waist. He was in an SUV. And so he could see that I had my phone down at my waist, even though I had a hands-free device and I was speeding along with the other thousands of people speeding on the road. See, I'm justifying this right now. And, uh, and so I said, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I was trying to do the right thing. Obviously, I'm from out of town. I didn't really want to bring that up because people have weird feelings about people from Texas. So I wasn't sure that was going to give me any credibility. Uh, so he took my stuff, went back to the car. Long story short, just got a warning. Thank God and not a ticket. And, um, but I was scared. I was, I was nervous. Why? Because anytime an authority is coming against you, it's scary. So I get that Abraham was afraid, Abram, totally afraid, legitimately afraid. But God had made him this promise. Look back just a few verses to verse 3, chapter 12. This is what we looked at last week. He gives him this calling, I want you to follow me, and I will bless those who bless you. This is God speaking to Abram. And him who dishonors you, I will curse, In you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. God had given him the promise, number one, that he was gonna have a family. If he dies in Egypt, God's promise does not come true. But he also promised him, listen, I have your back. If people curse you, I will curse them. If people bless you, I will bless them. So he has a legitimate fear, but he also has a legitimate promise. And when we're afraid, we have to decide, who do we believe in more? Do we believe in the threats of man or the promises of God more? And Abram, he seems to believe in the threat of the Pharaoh. Now listen, everyone is afraid. I mean, you just even go through the scripture searching the word afraid. You're going to see an all-star list of people whose name occur in the same sentence of them being afraid. I mean, you start with Adam. We have Sarah here, Lot, Jacob, Moses, Gideon, Samuel, Saul, David, Elijah, Nehemiah, Job, Daniel, Joseph, the father of Jesus, all the disciples, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Zechariah, Pilate, Pharisees, Paul. And those are just the the who's who where the word afraid occurs alongside their name. If we then we started searching out context, we would find another 50 to 100 people that we know and are familiar with who are afraid. So the question is not, are you going to be afraid in its borrowed land? It's will your fear 
shake your confidence in God? Will you lose confidence in, in God's ability to provide and protect for you when you feel threatened, when you feel afraid? See, fear caused Abraham to underestimate God's strength in keeping his promise. As if God would have been able to keep his promise, no problem, back where they were when food was plentiful and they didn't have to move. But now that they've had to move and now they've had to go to Egypt and now there's potential threat on his life, then maybe God is not able to protect him quite as well. Like God is able to protect you when you don't need protecting, but when you do, he may or may not come through for you. It's like sometimes when we drive to Missouri to visit my family, we wake up early in the morning here and, and we drive, you know, and so for the first four or five hours, I drive, I take that shift, Amanda and the kids uh, sleep, and, and then when we get on the other side of Dallas, this window begins where Amanda is willing to drive. So after downtown Dallas, we can pull over, she'll get in, but then there's a point in Oklahoma where it's no go. And so as long as it's a good freeway, and we don't have to start going through all those little towns where the speed limit changes, because again, she would rather me get the ticket than her get the ticket, you know... She will drive in that window, but if it's snowing, as it has occasionally when, you know, we've gone on Christmas, of course not down here, but in North Texas, you know, she doesn't want to drive then, or if it's raining really heavy, uh, she doesn't want to drive then. So if the conditions are perfect, then she's willing to drive, which I totally understand. I'm the man. I like to drive anyway, but sometimes I like to take a nap, you know, plus the nap makes it go by faster, and I get to control the radio because that's what the person in the passenger seat gets to do. But I feel like that's the way most of us act with our trust in God. If the conditions are perfect, then we don't mind saying, you have total control over my life. I'm willing to follow you. I will believe you. I will live my life according to your way if the conditions are perfect. But as soon as the conditions are not perfect and we feel threatened and we feel afraid, what do we do? Well, I'm going to take my life back in my hands because better we go down having had control than go down not having any control. And somehow that illusion of control makes us feel better. It doesn't make us feel less afraid. It just makes us feel better. But the opposite is true. When your life feels the most out of control, when you feel the most afraid, that's when you the most need to put your life and trust in the hands of God. Abraham needed to trust God's promise in this moment more than he did back when land was plentiful in Canaan. This is the moment that God, that is the reason why God gives us promises. God does not give you promises so that on your best day, you will just have something extra. God gives us his promises uh, promises, so that when you feel the most terrified, the most vulnerable, the most afraid, you'll have something to walk on and keep moving forward on. God's promises are made for this moment, not an ideal condition. But Abraham wanted that control back. And that fear causes us to overestimate our ability and underestimate God's ability. Look at verse 13. He says, Say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. 
And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So listen, Abram was right. What Abram thought was going to happen, happened. They got down into Egypt. The people noticed that Sarah was, Sarai was beautiful. And so they offered to give her to Pharaoh. And it was possible because Abram was saying, yeah, she's my sister. And if you look... Um, Uh, Down in verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, uh, see, verse 16, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So Abram gets all this stuff from the Pharaoh, which in their culture is what happened when there was a marriage arrangement. There was some exchanging of money. There was some, some, some kind of trading that happened. So scholars think that literally... In our language, Abram is not just letting his wife be taken. He is walking her down the aisle. He's taking all this stuff from Pharaoh in what looks like an arrangement. Look what it says in verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Abram gave everyone the impression that Sarai was just his sister. But God knew better. Listen, God can see past all of our manipulative maneuvering. All of our half-truths, all of our justifications, all of our painting things in a certain light so that people get one impression when the truth is the other. We may fool everyone else just like Abram did. But you don't fool God. He sees right through it to the truth. And the truth was that even though Pharaoh had taken Sarai into his house, she was Abram's wife. Verse 18, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? And why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Abram literally was escorted out of Egypt. Pharaoh gave instructions to his men and they walked them out of Egypt. And listen, it looks like Abram got away with it, doesn't it? I mean, he came up with this scheme. He had a legitimate fear. His scheme worked. And not only did his scheme work, but he got all this stuff. Pharaoh gave him all this stuff. And then he got to keep his stuff. And they just had to leave Egypt. It looks like he got away with it. But he didn't. I want you to turn to Proverbs. Keep your finger in Genesis. Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. It says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare or a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Abram didn't trust in the Lord, he was afraid of Pharaoh who was a man, and because he was controlled by that fear, he laid two traps. It doesn't look in Genesis chapter 12 like any of those 
traps were set and then he was caught in them, but he didn't. The first trap he set was he set a trap for his children. Because we keep reading in Genesis, you get to Genesis, Genesis chapter 20, Abram does the exact same thing again. This time to a king named Abimelech, gives Sarah, Sarai, his wife, away again. And then you fast forward a little bit more. Abram and Sarah, Sarai have had a son. And you get to Genesis chapter 26. Six, and Isaac is grown now and he has a, a very beautiful wife of his own. Her name was Rebecca. And they sojourn into a place and Isaac is afraid that they will take Rebecca and kill him. So his son, Isaac, does the same thing he did. Let's just pretend that you are my sister and it'll be fine. You know, many of us would like to leave a strong legacy to our children. And this is relevant even if you're not married, even if you're married and don't have kids. Abram and Sarai don't have any kids when they go down to Egypt. He set a trap for his children before he had children. But even if you're able to fast forward down the line to, to have children or just the people that you, you influence, you want to leave a legacy of some kind. You want to leave a reputation. You want to leave a mantle to hand down to your children. Listen, some of us, like Abram, are going to leave a legacy of fear, of being controlled by fear, of making bad decisions, short-sighted decisions in fear. Listen, some of us are taking short-term solutions to get away from our fear and we're setting long-term traps. And they may not even be traps that you get caught in yourself. You may make a decision based on fear in this generation that a generation from now someone else will reap. Because you are always teaching. I don't know if you've thought about that. You're like, well, I'm not a teacher. No, every single one of us is a teacher because every single one of us is a learner. I mean, let's just take the men, for example, in here. Every man in here this morning is teaching the other men how to be a man. Now, maybe that's not what you were thinking, but that's where you learned to be a man. You learn from the men in your life and you learn from the men on TV. We're just always learning. And some of us are saying, hey, being a man means you wear boots. And being a man, uh, being a man means you, you go hunting. And some of us are saying being a man means that you are into budgeting. And being a man means that you live in the suburbs. And being a man means that you play sports. And we got all these different versions but we're all communicating and teaching because we're all learning. And some of us are going to teach our children how to be afraid and be controlled by fear. Not because we want to. I guarantee you if we went around the room and said, do you want to teach your children how to be afraid and be controlled by fear? None of us would want that. But being afraid is easier than being brave. And I know you, and I, I think that I know me on most days. I want to teach my children how to be brave. And I'm not talking about being brave, like let's ride roller coasters and let's jump out of this airplane and that would be awesome. Or let's climb this really tall tree and just be up here. I'm not talking about those kinds of things. I'm talking about those little voices that whisper fear in your ear. When you take a new job, you're going to fail. 
all the expectations that they have. You're not going to measure up. They've set goals for you. You're not going to meet them. You're a terrible mom. You're a terrible dad. You're going to be alone. Everyone you love is going to walk away from you. You're on the outside looking. I'm talking about those fears. Listen, nobody's ever had their life ruined because they were afraid to ride roller coasters. Nobody's ever had their life ruined because they were afraid to climb up on the top step of a ladder. But listen, lives get destroyed every day because of those fears that are whispered in in our minds and in our hearts. And I want to teach my children not how to be brave and do crazy things. I want to teach my children how to be brave in the voice that they hear in their minds. Now, my dad is, is teaching me a lesson right now from 700 miles away. My, my grandfather passed away, his dad, and, uh, yesterday. And, uh, he's been sick for a long time, but not in a life-threatening way. And the last, uh, about three weeks ago, I got a phone call that said, hey, you know, grandpa's not doing very well. And, and so Jackson and I actually started our, our road trip and we drove to Missouri so that I could essentially say goodbye to him and say all the things that you'd want to say to your grandfather uh, that you spent most of your life with. And, and so uh, he really, in the last three weeks, just take a, taken a turn, a bad turn. And my dad has a great relationship with his father and it was, it was very, been very hard for my dad and I've not really seen my dad cry you know, most of my life, but um, you know, this, is, this is hard. There's a lot of grief and he's been grieving and, and all my whole family this last three weeks have been scared of death, a legitimate fear. But what my dad has taught me in these last weeks is how a man serves his family when he's afraid. You know, he's working all night because my dad works a night shift. He'd work all night. My grandma would call him in the morning and say, I need you to come over. And he would go over to my grandpa and grandma's house and work all morning, serving my grandfather, sitting on his bed, wiping his head, getting him up when he needs to get up, laying him down when he needs to lay down. And I have learned this is what it looks like to be brave in the face of death. There are people that you have influence over. And if you are not intentional, all you will teach them is how to be afraid because that comes so natural to us. For all of our movies where somebody acts brave and courageous and all of our television stories and all of our fairy tales, that is not human nature. Human nature is Genesis chapter 12. My life is under threat and I'm gonna do whatever it takes to eliminate that threat from my life. It's abnormal and supernatural to be brave. And Abram, he wasn't intentional, and so he set a trap for the generation that would come behind him to just follow in his steps of fear. The second trap that he set was for his marriage. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 16. Two different times, Abram gives his wife away in marriage to another man. Here in Genesis chapter 12, and then in Genesis chapter 20, he does it again. Now scholars are not sure how far into intimacy this marriage with Pharaoh went. Was she just one of many women that Pharaoh had in his uh, harem under his authority? 
or were they man and wife in every sense of the word? We don't get those details from Genesis chapter 12, but either way, you can imagine the emotional trauma that Sarai must have felt when her husband came up with this idea. Let's pretend that we are not married. In fact, I'm going to be so into this pretending, I'm going to let you marry another man. I'm not going to fight for you. I'm not going to defend you. I'm not going to speak up for you. I'm going to save my own neck on your uh, expense. Imagine the marital trauma of something, if that happened one time, but it didn't just happen one time. He did it again. And so it's no wonder that in Genesis chapter 16, after Abram and Sarah had tried to be pregnant, but they can't be pregnant, and how they're going to be the father of a great nation if they can't have any children of their own, Sarah comes up with an idea of, of her own. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And so after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. He set a trap for his marriage. And listen, Abram does have a son with Hagar. They name him Ishmael. Then Sarai and Abram have a son just like God had promised. They name him Isaac. And this very day in the Middle East, the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac are battling out over borrowed land. You know who set that trap? You know who started that conflict? It was Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, when he violated his marriage vows, when he said, I love you, but I love me more. And he gave her away to another man, not once, not twice, so it may, uh, but twice. It makes perfect sense then that uh, this scheme of Sarai's would, would be no big deal. Because if he could give her away, she could give him away. And he set a trap for his marriage which then was a snare to every generation that has followed in Abram's steps. Short-term solutions to alleviate our fears, but long-term traps. So what should we do when we're afraid? You should find your faith and you should find your wisdom. In the face of legitimate fears, you find your faith. You go back to what God has said. You go back to the promises that God has made. You go back to the fact that he holds your life. He knows your beginning and your end. He, he knows the calling that he has on your life. And he's going to bring your life to fruition. You go and find your faith. And then when you find your faith, that God is good and he is trustworthy and he has a plan for your life, then you find your wisdom. Maybe wisdom for Abram and Sarai would have been to say, this is a real and legitimate threat. We believe God is going to protect us, but maybe the wise thing is to go to another country besides Egypt. Or maybe they just would have decided, hey, God is going to protect us. We have this faith. Let's just be honest and say, no, she's not just my sister. She's my wife and I love her. And remember that God was going to bless who blessed him and was going to curse 
those who cursed him. See, faith and wisdom go together. Faith and wisdom are incredible partners. Faith and fear, they have no business together. And where you find one, you will not find the other. So when you're afraid, you don't just make a decision based on fear. You gather yourself and you remember who it is you believe in. You remember who it is that you follow. You remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ who had a calling on his life, who was under real threat, whose life was in real danger. But instead of exiting, he walked through the fear. So last week, Jackson and I were in Sonora, Texas, the home of every great George Strait song. And there are some caverns there, the Sonora Caverns, and we had seen a bunch of billboards as we were driving down the road and got a recommendation from Amanda, who had gone there when she was a child. And, and so we started, we'll pull off and go. And so, uh, you know, we show up at the caverns, and they got the little building where you buy your tickets and you learn about things. And we were trying to get to Houston that day, and so I said to the girl behind the counter who seemed very young I said how far is it from Houston because I'm kind of on a time frame here and she's like oh it's just four hours turns out she didn't even have her license so she doesn't know how far things were Uh, so it was more than four hours but uh four hours okay that sounds good and then I'm like how much is it you know because every person cares about that and they say how much it is and it's not it's in the middle ground of it's probably more than I want to pay for this experience but not so much that I'm not willing to do it so I put the decision in the hands of my seven-year-old son and I say what do you want to do do you want to go into this cave and explore it and do this whole thing and or not because we can just go home and whatever he's like no no I want to do it so we buy the tickets and they said the tour is going to start in 30 minutes and so we wait, we're sitting out waiting. And about 10 minutes before the tour starts, he starts acting jittery. Now he's seven, so he's just always acting jittery, you know. And I'm like, what does it matter with you? You know, and he's like, I'm nervous. I'm like, what are you nervous about? He's like, I'm nervous about the cave. I've never been in a cave. And I'm like, don't worry about it. There's a tour guide, there's stairs, there's lights. It's gonna be fantastic, you're gonna love it. And he's like, okay. But he still kept being jittery. And so finally we meet up with the rest of our tour. It's there's six of us in the tour guide and we start walking down this long path, you know, that's going to lead you to the door. We get to the door. You know, you think a lot of people are, would kind of be afraid to be in a cave and they would try to make that door kind of warm and inviting. No, it's like a steel door to a bunker, like a military bunker. And they open it up and then you step inside and the door just boom, closes. And as we're in the moment right there, kind of in the entry to the cave, he starts going, <sighs> what are you doing? People are around. Like people are around. Breathe like a person, please. Breathe like a person. And so now we're in the cave, the tour started. He's still doing that. And maybe a better father would have been like, I'm going to rescue my son from this situation. But all I'm thinking is like, I don't think I'm going to get my money back, you know? But the the deal that I made with myself is if he says, I want to go, then we'll leave. But if he doesn't say anything, I'm just going to let it ride. And so for five long minutes, (sighs) the tour guide's looking at us and I'm just smiling. This is awesome cave, you know, it's fantastic. And after about five minutes, he slows down. 
and thing about the Sonora Caverns is, uh, this is a little history lesson for you, they are alive, so they're actively being formed. So they tell you over and over again, do not touch anything. Don't touch anything. You touch it, it kills it. No pressure, but it dies. So she really told the whole group, but she was telling the seven-year-old, you know, don't touch anything. And he loved that cave so much. I mean, you can see in somebody's brain when they're thinking like, I want to reach out and touch these popcorn looking balls that are on the, the wall right now. I want to touch it, but he didn't. And then, you know, they got those like soda straws, those thin things that look like icicles, but are solid rock. And you can reach out and you could grab one if you wanted to. And he wanted to, but he didn't because he loved it. And we get to one of those pools that looks so clear. It, it looks like it's only, you know, two or three feet deep, but then you find out it's 15 feet deep in there. And he wanted to throw money into that thing, but then it like oxidizes and it ruins it forever and ever. And, and he loved it. He loved it. And I think about how many times in my life God has had joy and wonder on the other side of my fear. But I took the first exit out of fear and I missed out on the joy. I missed out on the wonder because I wasn't willing to endure the momentary fear Listen, let me tell you, I think, I think I can say this with certainty. Whatever situation or whatever person is in your life right now that is causing you to be afraid, it will not last forever. So don't make a bad short-term decision in fear that will cause you to miss out on long-term joy. And what does the scripture say about Jesus? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I mean, he was full humanity. So if any of us are under the impression that when Jesus was arrested, that he was not nervous. If any of us are under the impression that when he he was being beaten, he was not anxious about that. If any of us are under the impression that when he hung up on the cross, that he was somehow immune from those feelings of humanity, we are wrong. The difference between Jesus and me is he never took the easy route out. He never turned around. He never backed out. He never tried to find the alternative path. He believed in the one who had sent him. And he believed in the joy that was ahead of him. I don't know if God is going to take away all the things that make you afraid right now. But can you say, like what is said about Jesus, for the joy set before them, they endured the fear. They didn't make decisions in their fear. They didn't make, they weren't controlled by it. They endured it. They were brave. Even in the face of danger. Even in the face of anxiety and fear. So let's follow Jesus today. Not into situations that are comfortable. But into some situations that may be very scary. But let's follow him all the way through it something better and wonderful on the other side. Let's pray. What is it that you are afraid of in this season of your life? What fears are routinely whispered into your ears?
God, meet us there, right there in those fears. In Jesus' name.